You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to now invite you to join me, as is our custom as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, to open a Bible with me to Matthew chapter 17. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew for over a year now, and as you join us, if you don't have a smartphone or a Bible that will get you access to that, do me a favor, you'll see a blue paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Make that our gift to you. You can take that with you and give that to whomever you know who doesn't have a Bible. We want to put as many Bibles into as many hands as possible because we believe that when we open it, God actually begins to open us. And so as we've been doing that as a church going through the Gospel of Matthew, the the first book of the Bible, or the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, that is the good news, literally, of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we make our way through the the turning point, as I've shared with you, of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15, 16, and 17, particularly 16 and 17. And so as you've seen for the last, uh, last several weeks that we've been in chapter 16, you see this turning point where, where it's as if the Bible uh, in, in, the, in the story of Matthew in this gospel goes into slow motion. Now, each of the gospels does this. Each of the gospels, the good news of Jesus, tells us most specifically about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we've spent about 16 chapters being introduced to Jesus, and yet the last, the whole, all the way to chapter 28, things are going to slow down, and it's going to be a, a, like a slow, painstaking story about the suffering of Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to be betrayed, crucified, and resurrected. It's like uh, if you saw in the last couple of weeks when we were chapter 16, Jesus asked the quintessential question that turns the whole book and it says, who do you say that I am? Which is what we ask to everyone. Who do you say that Jesus is? I want to commend that to you. And yet, as, as the apostle Peter answers, in this sense, chronologically, the first one to say this and see this, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But it's more like in the story of Matthew, he's like, you are the Christ, There's, right? And I, I'll, I'll promise I won't do that again. But you get the point, I think, I hope. Otherwise, that was worthless. Uh, but I don't, I don't, maybe I should rehearse slow-mo better uh, or more. But we've come to this point now. He has declared Jesus as the Christ. And yet, there are subsequent stories about how they still don't quite get it. There's still much to learn. And so he begins to predict them, uh, sh- share with them his prediction that to be the Christ, to accomplish what God has sent him to do, It won't be like they think. He, in fact, will suffer, die, and be resurrected on the third day, which is shocking to these people. And so, in verse 1 of chapter 17, we we get a picture, a a glimpse into the glory that will be revealed in what Jesus will accomplish for the rest of the gospel. A little glimpse, a little picture, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this 
is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. As has been our custom I want to begin our time reflecting on what Matthew teaches us here about Jesus with a question. How close have you been to a lightning strike? Just a moment, reflect with me. Can you think of a time where you saw lightning strike very, very closely? Just for a moment, kind of go back with me to that. What do you remember about it? What comes to, to, your, to your minds as you think on it? I've got a few. <laughs> uh, a couple, uh, more so that uh, I'm afraid to tell them because they're more so a story of ignorance. Uh, because some of the closest I've ever been to lightning, strike, uh, lightning striking, I was holding a metal object playing golf or baseball. <laughs> as if, to, like, hey, right? Or one time, I remember I was, a, I was at, a, uh, at a camp and was in, in, a, in the middle of a lightning storm and we were swimming in the lake, which I don't, again, no one told us not to, I, but we should have, we were old enough to know better. You get the idea? And when it kind of occurred to us how dangerous it was, like, it, it was something. What's the closest you've ever been to a lightning strike? What do you remember about it? Because Matthew describes for us with more superlatives than I can fit into our time together, the closest estimation to being in the room with or in the very presence of a bolt of lightning. In fact, the language that he uses to describe what happened, did you, did you catch some of that? It's hard to translate. It became white as light, right? You get this idea that he's, he's talking about the brilliance and radiance of something that's beyond his ability to, to describe. And I, and I bet for a few of you in this room, if you've been very, very, very close to lightning being struck, you also would struggle to put into words just exactly what it felt like and also what exactly it sounded like. And then as the overwhelming brightness, the radiance comes, it says that they fell on their faces because it said that in verse 5, the bright cloud overshadowed them. Do you, do you hear the translator's difficulty describing what happened, right? I mean, light and brightness can't 
overshadow you, right? That's, that's, that, that's, not how that, that's not how light works. But, but you get it. You get the idea that there, Matthew is telling us something about what the apostles had encountered in Jesus that you and I are invited to see for ourselves that is beyond our ability to describe with more superlatives than we know what to do with. And so here, here's what I want to convince you of, and I hope you enjoy it. Jesus is the most best greatest. <laughs> Fun thing about speaking in ways that are grammatically incorrect is you can move that around if you want. Jesus is the greatest, most best. You're not any better off. And before you think that's kind of silly, listen to how the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells the exact same story of how these, these people encountered them. And in the same way did you, that we read just a moment ago that when they encountered Jesus and his radiance, Peter just feels the need to say something. And like, like most of us, he, he kind of speaks for us and we're like, yeah, I don't know what you would say in that situation, right? Like imagine for just a moment that you were all of a sudden in, in the presence of the most famous, important people that have ever existed in history, Right? Maybe because they're so intelligent, so famous, so influential, so, right, so successful. And that, what would you say? In fact, who cares what you would say? It would probably not be helpful. So when Luke tells this exact same story, he tells the exact same story, but he adds a little phrase to the end of this particular part. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. You hear it? Same, same account. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds this little phrase so that we'll know exactly what was going on, not knowing what he said. As if to say, Peter responded to the overwhelming, overwhelming brightness and radiance of Jesus, and he really didn't know what he was talking about. In effect, he didn't make sense. And so that brings me back to the point I want to make again. Jesus is the most best greatest. You can't put it into words, and, and this story is, is packed with more superlatives than I know what to do with. Because we get a picture of his glory in the first couple of verses. We get a picture of his company, namely the law and the prophets, symbolized by Moses himself and Elijah himself. We see a, and hear a divine commendation, again, just like the one that was declared over him at his baptism, and a commandment to listen. We see also his terror in his glory. And yet we also see his advocacy and comfort, as well as in the last section, a, a prediction and an explanation to encourage his disciples. All of this, all of this in a way to help his disciples understand. After all, we've seen on multiple occasions, no shorter than at least probably, I've, I've counted seven in chapter 16 and 17, where Jesus, in effect, rebukes or corrects or at the very least instructs his disciples, once they know that he's the Christ, he still is saying that, like, well, this is an evil and adulterous gener generation that demands signs other than the sign of Jonah in chapter 16, verse 4. He asks them, how do you fail to understand that I'm not talking about bread? And said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it says in 16:11. In the verse 23 of the last chapter, he tells Peter, after he says he's the Christ, get behind me, Satan. And then four times in this chapter, one we see in chapter, in verse 10, the disciples don't quite understand, and we'll see three more for the rest of this chapter. Little chapter, little explanations for these disciples who didn't quite get it. So let's start at the beginning here with the first two verses. We see his glory. We see the glory of Jesus. Jesus is glorious. So listen to how Matthew tells us this. After a few days later, right, you get the, the picture that this is on the journey from Caesarea Philippi. We'll see back um, through Galilee and all the way to Jerusalem in the next chapters. 
So he's on the way, and then he takes aside Peter, James, and John, his brother. Practically speaking, when we talk about discipleship in our church, this is a side note here, but we talk about Jesus teaching and discipling the crowds. We try to emulate that as a church, even now as we're gathered. We sit and try to behold Jesus as best we can. And, and then we see, for us as a church, gospel communities represent what you see in the beginning of this chapter. Jesus calling a handful of people, 12 to, to his presence, and, and there's something powerful that happens in a small group. But then we also have what we, what we as, as our best estimation or best emulation of this, we have cohorts or pods where men and women gather together in even smaller groups simply doing this, that they're going to gather together because the Holy Spirit shows us even something more powerful about Jesus in that dynamic. We saw him meeting one-on-one, obviously, uh, in the last couple of weeks. This is where my rebukes likely fit. When you tell someone, get behind me, Satan, you want to do that one-on-one. You don't want to do that in a crowd of, per- a crowd of people, unless you're Jesus, but you're not. So. so, back to the text. It led this Peter, James, and John, evidently the most prominent. We don't we don't entirely know why, but, but these were like, let's think of, these are, these are the leaders, even of the 12. Jesus going deeper with fewer, he leads them up the mountain. In verse 2, he was transfigured before them. Now, this is why I started making up words, because this is where we have to. Quite literally, this word is metamorphosed. That is that, I did look at that, that is the form, that is the verb form of metamorphosis. He was metamorphosed, he was transfigured. So we had to kind of come up with a word to describe that, because after all, how do you describe a human metamorphosing into something radiant and glorious, so much so that it causes an overwhelming sense of terror from the people who are nearby. And so the gospel writers all call this a transfiguration. He was transfigured, and he became what was a lowly man. Think of the prophet Isaiah. Not particularly impressive or handsome and all of a sudden he became did you catch that in verse 2 like the sun and his clothes even his clothing became white as light right as as bright as bright and see we, we see a powerful picture here when it comes to Jesus I want you to realize there's always more than meets the eye there's always more than meets the eye and this this is a real-life example of this. And his glory revealed to these men on this mountain is meant to stir up your own thoughts for the, the whole of the Old Testament leading up to it. First, you see the word mountain here again. This is kind of like another phrase we especially see in the Gospel of Luke, but elsewhere in the Bible, they arose early. Anytime you're reading through the Bible and you find that phrase, they arose early, you're meant to go, oop, you're meant to like perk up your ears and go, okay, something big is about to happen. And one of the other phrases is any sort of mountaintop experience. In fact, that's where we get that phrase. Whether it's Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, that are sometimes even spoken of interchangeably, through which God came to Moses and brought his law to his people as they were making their way to the promised land. To Mount Carmel, where even Elijah would have experienced God descending in fire to to completely disprove and even wipe out at that particular juncture the prophets of Baal. And then we saw in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 another picture of Jesus teaching and the most famous thing ever read or ever recorded for us, the Sermon on the Mount. So you're meant to think, okay, something big is about to happen. And boy, does it. He goes up to the mountain and this glory 
shines in his face. Now, this is important again because when Moses came down from the mountain, having encountered God, he was radiant, but he was radiant in that he simply reflected the glory of God. He had encountered God, and it made him so radiant that he had to, he had to wear a veil because the people couldn't look at him. He was so bright. And yet something is amazing here, as we've already seen, whether it's Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he is this new Moses bringing a new exodus. He's not the glory of God reflected. He is the glory of God embodied. He is the glory of God incarnate, literally taking on flesh. He is the glory of God in person, in the flesh. The glory of Jesus is not reflected. He is divine. He is God himself. So that we would know, like the the mystery of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, when it comes to Jesus, there's always more than meets the eye. But then you see, after this glory, you see next his company. We learn something about him through his company. And again, another, it's another superlative, if you will. And so Jesus then, as we find him meeting with, speaking with Moses and Elijah, symbolizing the law and the prophets, is the fulfillment, embodiment, and even, I'll add, and I'll, I'll explain this in a minute, the encouragement of the law and the prophets. Moses here sim- symbolizes in his presence the law. That is the one who who brought God's law to his delivered people, that they would experience a new way of living distinct from the world, holy and set apart as they receive his promises. But you also see Elijah here, who in this sense represents all of the prophetic teachings, the promises of God, the plans of God to restore his people. And Jesus, again, I'm just piling on superlatives. I feel like I'm I'm like Jimmy Fallon up here. It's amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) It's going gonna, it's gonna to last a while, so just bear with me. <laughs> Jesus is that. He's the fulfillment of the very word of God to direct his people and the very word of God to encourage and offer promise to his people. Jesus is all of these things. He's the greatest. He is the best. He is the highest. There is none greater. And we see this not only through his glory and radiance, but we see it in his company. These are the most important people in the, in the story of the Bible. But I want to add something to it that if you'll, if you'll allow me, I spoke about this even on Christmas when we, in the Gospel of John, Jesus taught, or Gospel of John, John tells us about Jesus coming and it's his glory that is beheld. And so I, I think even as we went through the, the Sermon on the Mount, we made this case as best we could that Jesus is this new Moses. He is the fulfillment of Moses and even the prophecy of Moses leading a brand new exodus, unlike any other. He's the new deliverer, bringing a new deliverance. In Deuteronomy 18, and I commend this to even to your study, even before he, uh, before he kind of moves on from his role, Moses predicts this. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And hear this language. It is to him that you shall listen. It says that ultimately, he says that, uh, that there, there will be this prophet that comes, and in verse 18, he says, I will raise up for these people a prophet from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, 
and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will listen to my words, and he shall speak in my name, uh, excuse me, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I I myself will require it of him. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of this prophecy of Moses. But he's also the embodiment. He is the new deliverance. He is the new leader of a revolutionary exodus. He is the new freedom. He is the new victory to the captives who are dead and wasting away in sin. And now they find rest and promise in Jesus. Moses went up to the mountain to bring God's word to God's people. Jesus, we find here, goes up to the mountain to bring God's people back to God. And Jesus makes his people shine with him. He's the fulfillment of the law. But he's also the fulfillment of the prophets. And that's what Elijah represents here. Elijah represents all the predicted promises, whether it's Isaiah 9, predicting that Jesus would would take up the throne and lineage of David, which we saw in the first chapters of Matthew. Whether it's Micah, the prophet who predicted where Jesus would be born, and even the, the turmoil, the violence into which he would be born. Or Daniel predicting the very time and season and era of his birth. Or Zechariah predicting that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. All of this is to share with us that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the, he is the embodiment of all that the prophecies have spoken. He is the word of God made flesh. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Perfect righteousness on display. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. Perfect righteousness on display. But let me spend a little time here also explaining to how he is the encouragement to the law and the prophets. You see, if you were to spend this week, and I commend this to you, to kind of relive or retell the story of Moses and Elijah, you'd find like many stories in the Old Testament, they serve as great appetizers for Jesus. They give you just enough to really wish you had something more. And the story of Moses and the story of Elijah are, are no different. They both end on a very, very dark note. The story of Moses ends uh, in, in a pretty awful way. If, if, you, if you want to, you can read Numbers chapter 20, and you see something powerful that happens as God gives Moses this power through the staff that he wields to, to, in that sense, image God's power to them. And as these people are wandering across the desert, they are starving and also dehydrated. And so God commands Moses, that too, God commands Moses that he would command the rock and out of the rock would come water that would feed, that that would sustain not only the people, but even their cattle, thousands and thousands of gallons, maybe millions But Moses doesn't do what God commands and simply command the rock. In anger, he rebukes the people, something God did not tell him to do. He takes the rod and strikes the rock. And God in his mercy still allows water to flow. But this is what he tells Moses and Aaron. He says, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron in Numbers 20, verse 12, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of my people Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Now later we find out, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is that better rock that was struck to sustain his people with living water. But, but make no mistake about it, Moses 
wandered with these people, these griping, faithless people throughout the wilderness to get them to the promised land, and he's not even going to get to see it. And so the story of Moses ends fairly disappointingly. I mean, maybe you like just going along on trips with long trips, like generation-long trips of people who are griping the whole time, wishing they, can we go back, right? But Moses, that was his life, and that was his lot. And he never got to see. He never got to see God's promise fulfilled. The story of Elijah isn't much different. The story of Elijah is something I think all of us would probably relate to. It's full of highs and lows. And if you want to, you can, you can kind of make your own trek back to the end of 1 Kings, chapter 19. You see a picture in chapter 18 of on Mount Carmel, this powerful glory of God displayed where Elijah encounters the prophets of Baal. He's being pursued by these wicked, wicked King Ahab and wicked King Queen Jezebel who want to kill him. And yet he has this encounter with these 450 prophets of Baal. And he has a showdown. He said, look, we're going we're gonna to lay out, we're gonna lay out this, uh, this sacrificed bull, but no one's going to set it on fire. You lay out your sacrifice, I'm going to lay out mine. And whichever God comes and lights the sacrifice on fire, he is the God. He's the one you should worship. He is the one true God that is. And the prophets of Baal, it says, run around. They even start to slash themselves open and cut themselves, gushing with blood, trying to compel their God to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And Elijah just sits there and taunts, right? Maybe, you're, maybe, you're, maybe your God is asleep. Yell louder. Maybe your God's in the bathroom, right? This is the taunt of Elijah. This is a high. This is a man on a high, right? He's feeling good about himself. And then the end of the story is that he calls, he prays out to Elijah, Elijah prays out to God, and fire comes down and licks up the entire altar, the sacrifice, and all of the water. Talk about a display of the glory of God. Imagine what that would do for your faith. Well, the very next chapter, it turns out that he is incredibly discouraged. Even though he saw something glorious, the end of the story of Elijah is terribly sad. 1 Kings 19, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord. I hear him kind of boasting in himself. The God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown away your altars and they've even killed your prophets with the sword. He's saying that because he's being a threatened. But listen to what he says. And I, even I only, am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. God commands him to go and encounter his glory. I'll pass by. And in a great strong wind and a Right? And these powerful things that happen in, a, in an earthquake and even in a fire. And God wasn't in them, but God encounters him in a still small voice. It says, when Elijah, in verse 13, heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak coming out of the cave, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So you get this picture that Elijah's face is covered. He isn't even looking at the fire, the earthquake, all the, he's not even seeing this. And behold, there came a voice that says, what are you doing here, Elijah. And he said again, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and altars and killed your prophets with your sword. And now I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Even though he had this massive high, an amazing encounter with God, he was left. And this, this summit, I think many of you would relate to this. He had an incredible low, gripped by deep loneliness and despair. If that's not a picture of depression, I don't know what is. I'm alone. 
I am cast off. And even when God is comforting him, there's something in Elijah that it's like, I'm, just kill me. There's nothing left for me to do but die. And then we don't really see Elijah anymore. He, anno- he anoints a king until he's caught up, right? He's, he's caught up in a whirlwind of fire that Elisha sees, and then his mantle is passed on to the prophet that would take him over. But, but other than this glorious uptaking, the, you're left with a, a terribly disappointing end to the story. And so when I say that Jesus is the fulfillment, the embodiment, and encouragement of the law and the prophets, it's not that just that Jesus is the new and better word of law and righteousness and of promise and hope. He also comes as the encouragement to those messengers. Because what we have at the end of those stories is an incredible low where Moses is devastated. He never gets to see the promise that God ultimately offered for the people he was leading. And Elijah never gets to see the repentance of Israel, the people he was ultimately speaking to. He never gets to see those things. He never gets to see them. And yet, what amazing encouragement. I don't know what was going on in heaven in the presence of God. I don't know how that works. I don't know what Moses and Elijah were doing, right? They were both called up in some miraculous death, but you get the picture. They're, I don't know. They're, they're in heaven, right? And God, the Father, in some miraculous way says, Moses, Elijah, come here. I'm going to send you down there because I have something you're going to want to see. The book of Hebrews describes declaratively what this narrative says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things. You hear that? Most, best, greatest. All things? All things. Everything. Through whom also he created the world. And then he describes in declarative fashion who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. You got it? Yeah, I don't want to miss it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to... You hear it? As many superlatives as you can fit. That's Jesus having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent even than theirs. It's as if God was saying as an encouragement to Moses, and I believe to you and to me, who all live with an angst and a hopelessness that we really wish would be satisfied in this life. And it's as if he says even to Elijah the same thing. Moses, this was never about you seeing the promised land. Moses, this was about seeing me. Elijah, this was never about seeing the nation of Israel restored. Elijah, this was about seeing the nations encounter my glory. So I want you to hear not only that Jesus is the fulfillment and embodiment of God's law and prophets, promises fulfilled for you and me, all of which find their yes and amen in him. He is also the encouragement to those who long and ache. You got to wonder what he's, what were they talking about? Like, what, what, was, what were they saying? Here in Gospel of Luke tells us they were, that Jesus was talking to them about what he, would, what he was about to suffer. Can you imagine that for just a minute? 
the thing you've longed for your entire life, you finally get to see. Friend, that's the image we get of what it's like to meet Jesus. He is the true and better Moses, leading a better exodus and deliverance for his people out of death and sin. He is the true and better word, the word of promise that God has not abandoned us, but will stay with us till the end. So in verse 5, back to the text, you see Jesus is also, we see Jesus through this divine commendation. Right? We've seen the glory of Jesus and the radiance. We've seen him in his company and fulfillment and encouragement to the law and the prophets, but he's also visible in his commendation and commandment. Did you see what happens? Similar to when he was baptized, this voice out of heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now it's interesting, what, what I skipped over there is what you find in verse 4. Peter, of his own accord, said, Hey, it's really good that we're here. Uh, that's helpful. He's not wrong. Uh, but like I told you when we first began, you know, Luke tells us he didn't know what he was talking about. And, and you should be nice to Peter because you would do the same. If This is why there's a lot uh, in, the, in, the, in the language of worship and adoration of the Psalms that involves just being still and being silent, right? And yet, see, we see here Peter doing what Peter does, kind of standing in the place where you and I would stand and probably say something even dumber. Hey, it's really good! Because Jesus was like, thanks, that's what I was going for, Right? Hey, I'm going to set up some tents. I'm going to set up these tents here, and we can all just stay here. But you get this picture of the importance of his words while he was still speaking. That is, God <laughs> interrupted Peter. As if, as if this divine, uh, divine revelation of how unimportant what it, is that Jesus, what it is that Peter was saying really is. He's like, hey, I got an idea. And now, right, just, just cuts him right off just interrupts him completely. And I want you to see some beautiful things in here. One is this. We only see Jesus for who he is with divine help. Right? Like, you get a, a juxtaposition of one of the apostles of Jesus, similar to what he said in, you know, in the chapter before, kind of trying to, like, talk about Jesus. And his words were so great. They were so amazing that God cut him off. Uh, would that God would interrupt me and others when necessary. Just cuts him off, as if to show us the only way to know who Jesus is, now this won't shock you or surprise you, this is what we saw last chapter, is with divine help. It's only by God's Spirit that we see and know this. So much so that it is God who, again, by his grace, I hope every single time we gather on a Sunday, and someone sings something about God, and someone like me stands up and tries to say something about God, that by his mercy, God interrupts. And he says something to you and to me that no other person could say, that he shows us something about who he is that no other person could explain. If we're going to see Jesus for who he is, then ultimately... We need divine help. Now, this also happens to help us with Phariseeism. I just throw this off the, kind of as a side note here. This shouldn't surprise us from what we've seen even over Christmas as we see like the, the declaration of Peter is ultimately not by flesh and blood, but by God's revelation. For 
Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, for who sees anything different in you? And there's this, this kind of a dissension and faction between Apollos and Paul in this church, and he's helping them through that. He says, what do you have that you did not ultimately receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's this humility that ultimately comes when we know that what we do know about Jesus is but a gift. It's only, it's only because God in his mercy has interrupted time in history to say a word of redemptive hope to you and to me. And that helps us, like the Corinthian church, fight divisiveness or, or even kind of a pridefulness or Phariseeism. So if there's a, a powerful revelation of God in play here, it leads to then a commendation, a declaration of God's love and a commandment to listen to him. First, the commendation of God's love. Now, I won't say much about this because we saw this in the previous, in, when, in, at Jesus' baptism, but listen to Jesus. Because in Christ, all that is true about Jesus, that's, that's the most amazing thing about the rest of the New Testament. For hundred, hundreds of occasions, like over 200 times, the phrase, in Christ, shows up. The word Christian doesn't show up hardly at all, other than to say kind of like, you know, Here's what it looks like if you're living in such a way that you're in Christ. But the language that shows up for the rest of the, United, for, for the, rest of the, the New Testament is the, the language we call the union of Christ. They were united with Christ. That in Christ, these things are now true of us. In Christ, we are so intimately united and connected to God that all that is true now of Jesus by grace is imputed and credited to us and now all that's true of Christ is true of us. Uh, and we couldn't fit all that onto the sign, so we went with Connection Church. <laughs> you get the idea, uh, divine, you, you, in your head think, sub, subtitle, the, the divine union with Christ by God. You get the idea. We are united with, connected to God in Christ, such that hear the good news. What he says about Christ here. He says to helpless sinners who look to him for hope. The creator of the universe, because of Christ, looks at those who have turned to him for relief and comfort and says the same thing to you and to me. And he looks through Christ and what Christ has done to you and to me and says, look, behold, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, Oh, how I'm pleased with them. Not because of anything that they've done, but because of what my son has done for them. So behold the commendation and love of Jesus. But then once you've done that, once you've seen that for what it is, behold the command. Listen to Jesus. Do not negotiate with him. Do not debate with him. The whole story of the Gospel of Matthew gets darker from here on out, but we get a glimpse of it even now. And the irony that it gets darker through brightness, right? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That is that for you and I who have beheld the glory of Jesus, that he is the superlative. He is God's word in command and promise fulfilled for us. Now everything changes. Everything changes. And so, friend, listen to Jesus. Stop negotiating with him.
Stop trying to debate with the creator and redeemer and sustainer of the universe. Listen to him about God. Listen to him about the kingdom of God. Listen to him about heaven. Listen to him about paradise. Listen to him about hell. Listen to him about the consequences and the cost of sin. Listen to him about money. Listen to him about possessions. Listen to him about the promises of God. Listen to him about the hope that he offers you. Listen to him about gender. Listen to him about sexuality. Listen to him about marriage. Listen to him about divorce. Listen to him about the poor. Listen to him about forgiveness. Listen to him about discipleship. Listen to him about the declaration of the good news of his kingdom. Listen to him about Sabbath. Listen to him about the temple. Listen to him about rest. Listen to him when he talks about the truth, the law. And listen to him when he looks to you, having paid the price that you and I could not pay, and he says to you, it is finished. Friend, listen to him. Now, I say that because I know on that long list and the list, I mean, the rest of the list that as you journey through the, the, the Gospels, you'd find yourself, there's at least a few of those things on that list that you don't like listening to. You really wish he hadn't said it, or there's some places you really wish he'd said more. And I know that because Peter stands, right? Peter stands in our place to show us what it looks like for us to go, oh, I, I know it. No, and there's an interruption. No, 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 no. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And I know that there are things on that list or things I didn't list that you really wish Jesus hadn't said. And I know that because I know there are things on the list I wish he hadn't said. I wish he hadn't said those things. And yet the extent to which you and I have beheld his glory is the extent to which we will listen to him. And so friend, if you find yourself hearing things that he says that offend, just stop for a minute. You shouldn't be shocked. No one gets hung on a cross by telling people what they want to hear. You're in the long list of people who really wish he would have shut up about that thing. And you're in the long list of people who yell when he says the thing you hate the most, crucify him. We'd rather have Barabbas than this guy. And then join with me the long list of people who he died to save. I want you to see. I want you to see what the apostles saw. Because what we find is that raw glory is not what you think it is. Raw glory is crushing. The word glory, you've heard me talk about this elsewhere, is sometimes translated weight or mass. So all you physics nerds in here, you're going to love this. Like, Think of gravity as the byproduct of mass and the same with it. Glory is the byproduct of greatness. That is, the greater the mass, the greater the power. And that's the picture of the weight, as it were. Right? I mean, again, think, the words don't fit, right? Like, if you think, well, like, how much does God weigh? Right? It's like, there's, that's not, that's, that's, that's incalculable. You can't, but, but again, take, take with me a sanctified journey in your imagination as we were to maybe calculate what it is that God weighs. And if God had a weight, a mass, somewhere in the universe, how much gravity would there be, right? How much force would there be? And now you get it. 
But recognize something in that, that the glory of God and the greatest weight that you can imagine isn't that good. It crushes you. Right? In the same way that, I'm, I, mean, I don't know, the, the glory of your car, if it fell on you, would do what? You get the idea? So before we spend our lives, or even in this moment, looking for the glory of Jesus, recognize what the apostles recognized. When the disciples heard this, verse 6, it says they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now again, this might be a callback already to, to what we've heard about Moses. Moses called out to God, show me your glory in chapter 33 of Exodus, but also when they built the tabernacle, God said to Moses, no one can go in there. And the glory of God rested inside the tabernacle. And so there's a few things going on here. That glory cloud that no one could behold, but instead was inside the tabernacle, served a few different purposes. Because after all, to behold God, we find in Exodus 33, which is exactly what, which is exactly what Moses wanted. I want to see your glory. Just show it to me. He says, you can't do that. If you see my, no one will see my glory and live. And so what do he say? Like, you hide in this cleft in the rock, and I'll pass over, and I'll let you see the, I'll let you see the train of my robe, right? I'll let you see my hindquarters, because that won't kill you. I, I, will, I will cover myself and turn from you, because my face would incinerate you. That's the idea of glory. If you think of glory as weight, it's crushing. But if you think of glory as radiance, it's incinerating. Again, you already know this, right? Like, how can you examine the sun? How would we learn about the sun? You, you, can't, you can't go out and look at it, at least not for long, right? You can't be like, I want a closer look at this and point a telescope at it. You get the idea? It would destroy you. You can't do it. This is also the glory and radiance, evidently, of Jesus. It's a radiance and glory that is too great for us to tolerate. And yet, in the same way that that glory cloud descended on the tabernacle, not only did it mediate God's presence, but it also did something amazing. It protected them. That ought to give you a window into even what Peter is asking. Did you hear what he wanted to build? That word tent is the same word you would translate tabernacle. It's not necessarily or only that this tent would hold God. That tent would protect them because this glory cloud, did you, did you hear the way he describes it? When the disciples heard this, it fell on their faces because in verse 5, it says, while God was speaking, the glory cloud did what? It came over them. It, it burst out of the tabernacle, as, as it were. It, it came out of its bounds and began to overshadow them. And they no longer were like, hey, Jesus, I'll build some tents. Oh, my goodness, right? Like, that's, that's the picture we get here. It's like, this is amazing. And then the, then the glory actually began to overwhelm them. The mass, the weight the glory of God began to crush them. The holiness and perfection of God began to burn them. We don't know what happened, but all we know is they looked down. They hid their face. Because raw glory is crushing. Make no mistake about it. To see Jesus for who he really is will crush you. It will destroy you. And yet, and yet, did you see what happened in the text? They're left there wondering, like, you, know, you get the idea there, they hide their faces in verse 6. And then in verse 7, what happened? Jesus comes to them and touches them. And says, rise. And he says one of the most common phrases in the entirety of the Bible, fear not. 
have no fear. Now, why is it that they could have no fear? Why is it that they, that they could, as it were, lift up their faces, rise and stand? Why is it that they could stand now in God's presence and not be incinerated? The answer, my friend, is good news, and it's in verse 8, because when they lifted up their eyes, what did they see? Read it. They saw no one. And then you get how redundant Matthew is in telling the story, but Jesus only. And friend, this is what we sing and mean when we sing in Christ alone. In Christ alone, we endure God's judgment and wrath. In Christ alone, his glory does not incinerate us. In Christ alone, we find out that we are delivered because Christ alone delivers us from the incinerating power of God's glory by emptying himself of it. And in so doing, we see a great paradox that the glory of God is revealed to these people in a strange metamorphosis. A strange metamorphosis. Because after all, you might be even now, if you're not a Christian or not a believer, you, you would hear me say, like, listen to Jesus, obey Jesus. That sounds ridiculous. And you might, if, I, would, I commend you to ask this. Why should I listen, listen to Jesus? Why should I trust him? And why, why should I behold him as radiant or beautiful? And friend, I want you to behold the beauty of the metamorphosis of Jesus. The metamorphosis, uh, the metamorphosis of Jesus isn't like the only metamorphosis I can think of, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Oh no. The metamorphosis of Jesus is more akin to like a butterfly to a maggot. Where he emptied himself fully of all the glory and radiance that was due him so that we could behold him in mercy and in grace. This shouldn't shock you if you read the book of Isaiah, the same thing happens. Isaiah chapter 6, he encounters the glory of God. The, the train of the glory of God fills the temple. And what is Isaiah's first response? Yay, let's go. No, he says, woe to me. I'm undone. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I have a filthy mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips, and, and I'm of a people with filthy mouths. We're so unclean. There's no way we can behold you. This happens with Job. When Job encounters God himself, what does he say? Like, I've heard of you, I've seen you, but now that I'm beholding you, now that I'm actually looking at you, I am undone. I am utterly overwhelmed. And it says that he then repented because that was the only thing he could do. And so, friend, behold the glory of Jesus. That is the presence of God come to earth not to crush you not to press you down, but to pull you up. The glory of God, not to incinerate you, but instead to illuminate, to show the way. And friend, when you see this, when you behold this, then listening to Jesus, then beholding him and obeying him start to make sense because friend, the glory of Jesus doesn't crush you, it saves you. That's it. The most powerful being, the greatest, most bestest, has come to be with you and for you. The lightning has come into your midst and presence not to destroy you, but to give you life and be encouraged. How should we be encouraged? Look at the very end. That last little section, it says they start to, they start to walk off in verse 9 and he begins to explain to them. And I, I want to show you the encouragement in this. 
The first side of this encouragement is, is notice what he says, that suffering is going to happen because it happened to John, and it's going to happen to me. But don't worry. Ultimately, the news that you're going to share is of my death and resurrection. Not some pseudo-Jesus, vintage Jesus. I came to bear the punishment of sins and be resurrected, vindicated on the third day. And when that happens, you get the idea, tell them, every, tell them all that you know. But look at the encouragement that comes through it. They would have looked at the beheading of John the Baptist and thought it was the worst failure. And they wouldn't have seen the glory of God coming through suffering. And that's my first encouragement to you. Maybe that is something you relate to, right? Like this is, how could God possibly be working in my miserable circumstances? And my first answer is, I have no idea. I have no clue, right? Like Luke, he doesn't know what he's talking about, okay? But on the other hand, what I do know is what seemed like a failure to them was the hidden glory of God on its way into the world. Paul says it this way to the Romans. He says, I now consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Friend, hold on to Jesus. Behold him, see his radiance and beauty. Because what might seem like and might actually be awful and miserable, including the beheading of John the Baptist, hold on. In Christ, it's a glory that's on its way into the world. The second encouragement is for you to begin to think that the time is right. Did did you hear what he was saying? Again, this prediction of Malachi, that ultimately this is who John the Baptist would be, was meant to encourage them for the days that would come, so that they would know that regardless of how awful things may seem, this is the time. This is the moment. All of the circumstances, all of the events that have led up to this moment are not a mistake but there instead were an invitation, a prelude for you to see something. And so friend, friend, is it possible that right now, in April of 2023, all the circumstances in your entire life have led you into this building so that you would see Jesus? Is it possible there has not been a mistake or accident in the entirety of your existence, but instead a carefully planned out path for you to come to this room this morning and behold the radiance and glory of Jesus, because I believe it is. Is it possible? Is it possible he's worth everything? Because after all, if he's the radiant glory of God, then you should obey him. You should do everything. But if he's not, then friend, you're right. Reject him. And this will be, uh, I think for us, this, this will be one of the most encouraging things you see. Paul encourages the Corinthians with this. For God who has said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. Last encouragement for you. Maybe you know this and maybe you're weary. Um, the book of Acts describes something amazing about Peter and John, these two of these men who were going around healing people, proclaiming the good news, and amazing things were happening. So don't read this whole verse with me. Imagine for just a minute, let's cut short, and then we'll wrap up. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. Stop right there where the period is. Imagine this. Imagine that sentence, that verse ends right there, right? Just for a minute. Imagine that verse just ended right there. And imagine your name was in there, right? Like, 
And they saw this person, and they were astounded at how uneducated and unimpressive they were, right? That's quite a verse, right, up to that point. Like, wow, did you you see that guy? I was impressed with how completely unimpressive he was, right? (laughs) I don't know much, but that guy was uneducated. Whoa, right? So just, again, imagine that the verse ends there, which is how the world would like to end the verse. But listen how the book of Acts talks about this gospel movement. It says, They were uneducated common men, and people were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were astonished, not because they could particularly tell that these men were equipped or educated. Again, you, you, you hear Luke in the background like, they, they Give him a break. He didn't know what he was saying, right? You get the idea? But, but instead, what was impressive is that they knew they had been with Jesus. So too have you. So too have you now in faith been united with Christ and received the love and affection of God, the acceptance of the Father. And something amazing, never forget the fact, never forget the fact that a small group of people transformed by an encounter with Jesus change the world. Never forget that. So, this is where usually I close and just say, let's pray, but I want to be more careful. I want to ask you how we might pray together. First, is there something that Jesus is saying to you that you need to obey? Then join me in praying that you might behold him more clearly, that he might empower you to be more bold, more courageous, and obedient. But maybe for some of you, this, this seems like a hoax, right? And I would argue that's probably true. You should either think Jesus is crazy or he's the Lord. And I want to invite you to begin to ask God that he would allow you to see through the eyes of faith the supernatural nature of Jesus. And then lastly, maybe for some of you, you're stuck in the middle. You don't think Jesus is crazy, but you don't really think Jesus is that big a deal. And woe to you who are lukewarm in the middle. As we pray, would you ask God that he also would show himself to you supernaturally, that you would behold him, trust him, and listen to him. Let's pray for those three things together. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Oh, God, I confess that I, I, like Peter, I, I, I don't have the words, and, and I confess I've filled this space with the best I could do. So, Lord, would you interrupt even now my own thoughts and words with yourself? Would you interrupt even in this room our time and meet with us, that we would see the greatness and radiance and massiveness in the glory of Jesus. And so for some of us, maybe that means we behold you to where we obey. Help us to know exactly where we're debating or arguing with you about something and help us to submit to what you say. Maybe for some of us, we... This just seems absurd. Would you help us to see something miraculous and mysterious that's been going on for centuries now? But then for some of us, maybe the glory of Jesus seems like an abstract thought, and we'd rather just simply stay a safe distance away. Help us to draw near, knowing that in in your glory we would be crushed and incinerated, and yet you have chosen in the face of Jesus to reveal your glory through redemption and forgiveness. Draw us near now by your glory. We ask you to do this because we can't. Show yourself to us. Transfigure, metamorphose in front of us that we behold your brightness, your radiance, your glory. We ask this 
In Jesus' name, amen.